Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Diversity Remix, only provocative conversations at the intersection of business, politics, and culture. I'm Charlie Echeverry. And I'm Jesus Chavez. This week's episode, Facebook Gets Religion for Real. In our deep dive today, as it mulls its move into the future, Facebook has recently made strange bedfellows with religious organizations to help them create community in the virtual world. Is this a well-timed, altruistic move into the future of faith? or an opportunistic economic and mindshare land grab. And in Courage or Cringe, Biden and Afghanistan, bar rescue in the doghouse, and Chris Cuomo confesses. Is our commander-in-chief's confident affirmation of the wisdom of his strategy in Afghanistan evidence of a principal long-term vision? Or is it a PR strategy being deployed to spin an international debacle? Did a popular reality TV host exaggerate to make an important point about the long-term effects of welfare? Or was his comment a thinly-veiled attack on vulnerable Americans at a difficult time in our collective history? And finally, did CNN's leading man come clean about the drama surrounding his disgraced brother and former governor of New York? Or was his admission a self-centered screed out of touch with the real issues at play? This and more this week on TDR. I don't know. I'm glad you care. I, the quality I, of this podcast will be... I desperately care about the quality of this terrible. podcast. <laughs> what do you mean terrible? If it, was up to, if it was just up to me. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah no, it would. It would. It's just, I'm very clear in my mind that that would be the case. Mm, okay. Why is that? Just because I, there's, there's certain things that I really care about and certain things that they're just further on the list. Because people would say, generally speaking, you're very detail-oriented. Yeah, that's true. So about then, certain things. So why doesn't that <laughs> it detail... Doesn't, it doesn't cut across everything. The, the detail does not apply to yeah. audio? Yeah, it does not. What do you think of spatial audio? Uh, I think in, uh, in its right um, use case, it mm-hmm. could be really interesting. I think it definitely could be very enhancing. I love the idea of immersing yourself in a universe. Yeah. And that could happen visually. I think audio-wise, it can also happen really, really well. Mm-hmm. I could even argue maybe even better mm-hmm. in some cases, right? But the idea is that, like, you know, as you 
do this right. stuff, you can kind of hear it all around right, you. Right, right. Right. I don't no, know if that works. Super... I think that'll work if I just. There is. Actually, was talking to talking about this as an example. It wasn't about spatial audio, but I think it's a. I, I want to say it's a podcast that does use it mm-hmm. in storytelling. Have you ever ever heard the podcast from? Um, uh, I think it's Gimlet Mother Hacker. No, Mother Hacker. Mother Hacker. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's about this. Sounds vaguely scandalous. This No, it's about this woman that gets like her identity stolen, I think I want to say. Mm-hmm. And then she get kind of, in her trying to like catch the person, she herself becomes like a hacker herself. So I forget, I frankly what? forget what the story is. But it's, it's a total. It's kind of like a. It's a, it's a total narrative story. Like no, there's, what's that show? What's the show where the, the, the teacher becomes the meth dealer? The uh, Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad. It's yeah, kind of yeah. like that kind of idea. Where I guess it's like they had this mom that's sort of yeah. unassuming all of a sudden becomes this 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 person, right? Yeah. She she gets sort of taught the trade from somebody else mm-hmm. of how to like hack people and mm-hmm. how to like con people. Um, but that one has a, like I think a lot of audio layers to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, multiple characters, a lot of them. You could totally see yourself being sort of immersed in that experience. So it's it actually sounds great. I mean, it makes sense that. If you can have people get closer to the story by feeling like they're a character in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Pick like your own adventure. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. like when we were kids, they had scratch and sniff, like little scratch and sniff stickers. <laughs> right. And that was like, I'm reading and I'm touching and now I'm smelling. It's like a uh, whole you, uh, thing. Like one of my, fa- and I'm sure you probably know what this is called. I don't know. I don't even know if it's a thing. I think it's a thing. Um, but the style of filming, when you are showing people, um, like a scene, but it's like you're showing it like if you're almost a character in the in the scene, like you're in a position like where you're seeing a conversation, but you're seeing it through the door. You're not in the room. Like typically, oh, you would be like framed, yeah. and you're there, like yeah. very much like sort of produced. That kind of third this person. Case, like, you're POV. sort of like there, yeah, you're peeking into someone's mm-hmm. discussion. I love when 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 people do that effectively in content. Mm-hmm. I, I love I love that as a view. But what you're talking about is this kind of like The Office, where there's somebody there's like. In, sometimes, in yeah, Office yeah. does that sometimes. I wasn't where, thinking where, of them. Where you're like, actually, there's a scene in the conference room, but your perspective is from being outside through the blinds. Right, right, right. Yeah, right. there is a name for that. I, I want to say, uh, it's uh, the, the, the term that comes to my mind is not it, but it's cinema verite, which is, I think, more about like, I, it could be that, actually. Let me look it up. It could be that. Because uh, I do have a minor in film, Jesus. I don't know if I you know, know that. I know, so I'm asking you that. Okay, I well, figured I, you would know I that. remember parallel editing and cinema verite, but if I don't think talk that either about one of those is that. engineering, how much torque something has. <clears throat> I remember that stuff now. But. A style of filmmaking characterized by realistic, typically documentary motion pictures that avoid artificiality and artistic effect and are generally made with simple equipment. Motion pictures made in the style of cinema verite collectively, so... It's like a very realistic kind of type of filmmaking, yeah. but but I but what you're talking about is is like you're actually a character in it, even though you're not in right. it. You're 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 there very close. I love. The I think fly that's what spatial audio is. That's what it is. Fly yeah. on the wall. Yeah, fly on the wall. And I, and I think that's I think a video in that way, and I think audio can be that as well. Mm-hmm. And um, I just love the idea of getting immersed in, in universes. Well, our fifty second um, episodes coming up, so we can have spatial audio on that. Uh, yeah. We're going to do the whole show with just us running around the studio <laughs> from all different positions. <laughs> By the way, I did the math. I actually think 52 is not our year. I think 53 is our year because we had one double episode, if you remember. Well, we, we did. We also missed a week. Oh, so then it, does that balance out then? Wait, where's oh, no, our double? Uh, we had a, we had two episode twenty oh, twos. Yeah, so sh- it will be. Oh, so this will, right, I think right. it's not. I think when we get to f- episode fifty three, we'll be at a year. This is episode fifty one. Fifty two will be better. Either way, I'm sure we'll be uh, having a drink or two. Um, yeah. So, 
What are we talking about? Uh, spatial audio. Spatial audio. Yeah. That has nothing to do with uh, our deep dive. Although, I mean, on some level it does. Here's how I can make the connection. Virtual world. Exactly. And you Face- there. <laughs> Facebook. You're on a kick. Facebook moving into the metaverse and new worlds, right? Virtual worlds. And as part of that metaverse move, our topic is somehow in that broader strategy, the idea of Facebook kind of getting involved with religion. Well, by the way, when you, whenever... Is that a weird connection? When it is. Yeah. But when you say metaverse, the first thing I think is multiverse. I'm sure that's related. There's some, yeah. <laughs> some version of that, right? Well, because right now they actually are multiverses, right? If you think of Roblox and you think of Fortnite and you think of these things, there's multiple universes. Mm-hmm. And the metaverse seeks to unite really all of them into one common experience. Mm-hmm. That's the general idea. So on some level, I think it, rever- it, it, it relates. If what you mean by multiverse in terms of the comic book multiverses, then yeah. not so much. But that's, what, that's what I totally mean. Although maybe that's, even that's the, where my head goes. Yeah. Maybe. Look, the whole thing is that we've come to a moment in, in the history of mankind where if you can imagine it, the technology exists to actually support it at some point. And if not, we're very close. Right. That's where we're at. Yeah. Because Ready Player One was the movie that basically we highlighted- We about the, the Matrix earlier today. We're talking about the Matrix. That's I mean, the Matrix is the multiverse experience. The, the Matrix is the next metaverse. Once we get to the the Ready Player One metaverse, then we will power it by plugging ourselves in like batteries or something. Machiavellian will happen. But. Yeah, I guess where, I, where I'm where I'm at with that is as I think about this whole idea that there is a universe that is not it's alone that is not the only, and that is uh, and the people that are in it may not actually realize there's multiple versions of that. Right, so Matrix is a good example of that. If you think yeah. about that, right? People that are in the Matrix. By the way, the multiverse universe. is also a cosmological, a cosmological theory, right? About the fact that we are existing in a universe, but there are other universes happening in reality right. that have alternate timelines and experiences and people in them. That's actually a a theory of like existence. It's not a technology. So yeah. when you say multiverse, it can mean a variety of different things, but. Anyway, that's how I loosely connected our first topic to <laughs> to uh, to the meta no to spatial audio spatial, spatial audio, audio to metaverse to Facebook to religion. So yeah, the the, the deep dive that we have is it's a it's a really interesting one, right? There was this piece that was that was reported in the New York Times that talked about Facebook's next target, which was uh, in terms of building community, which is the religious experience. And what was so interesting about even when we were talking about talking about this, this this subject is that we literally had <laughs> like two one back to back right one one uh article i think about the wall street journal that was basically all around social media's threat to religious freedom and then the very next which is now facebook say no 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 let, well, let's lean into religious experiences as sort of the next community that we want to basically own that experience right I think if you're uh, Facebook, you can play. And probably both of those are, are true. Or, or, you so can play, or you can play both sides. And you can you play know? both sides, yeah, yeah. yeah. When, I, when I, I think about this dynamic oftentimes in business, and, and I remark on the first time that I found out that the people who make the radar detectors, Bell Laboratory mm-hmm. radar detectors, are the same people that make the radar guns that the cops use. <laughs> That's great. I didn't know that. They make that. They make That's the gun great. and yeah. they make the detector. That's it's you a know genius. What? Genius. Good so, for them. So Facebook is trying to snuff out religion <laughs> and promote it <laughs> and promote all it all at the same, at the same time. time. That's called win, 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 right there. Win, win. Why wouldn't um, you be happy about that? So, so yeah, this piece talked <clears> about um, 
you know, this mega church Hillsong, which... Um, which is a, by the way, uh, and I don't know this. But I don't know anything about Hillsong. Do you, well, know, I know, do you yes. have some of the history? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. they have some controversy. They well, have they have some controversy recently, but Hillsong, you know, I don't know the chronology, but it's probably best known as a, um, as a Christian, as a worship band. I mean, they are oh, really? a... Oh, yeah. I mean, they're doing incredible music. Um, oh, interesting. Worship music, you know, evangelical variety, etc. But apparently that band then became a movement, then became a church. And I don't know the relationship and to my evangelical brothers and sisters yeah, who might be listening, they're all laughing at me right now because I don't know the Houston history. Frank Houston established Sydney Christian Life Center in 1977, which mm-hmm. later merged with Hills Christian Life Center, mm-hmm. founded by Brian to become Hillsong. So it was these two different Christian centers that... So maybe it has my, nothing to do with the band? Uh, yeah, maybe there's a band somewhere, somewhere in there. I, I just looked really quickly. That's, that's what I found. Yeah. But yeah, some, some of the controversies, one of the co-founders just got accused, right? Uh, Brian Houston, co-founder and senior pastor of the Global Megachurch Song, was charged by the Australian police on Thursday with concealing child sexual abuse carried out by his father in 1970s. So... But anyways, we're not really actually here to talk about that. Uh, the, the part that was interesting... They still in this, make good music, but go ahead. That's, that's something else, I'm <laughs> that sure. That may be something else. Yeah, what was interesting in this story that was covered by the New York Times, it talked about the fact that, you know, months before this mega church opened its its new outpost in, outpost in Atlanta, um, its pastor for that for that church uh, sought advice on how to build, basically how to build this church during the pandemic and from a very interesting partner, Facebook. Um, now, do, you th- do you think that that conversation is him reaching out to Facebook or Facebook reaching out to him? How does that happen? I, it, it's probably both. I'm not sure how it's because actually when you look at this piece, they talk about how Facebook has been proactively going and, and engaging yeah, with different since churches. 2017. So, so yeah, I'm not sure what, who you know approached you in this case, but um, it's, it's, mm. it is super interesting, right? Um, the Sam Collier, the, um, the the person, right, the pastor, he recalled in that interview that he said to use a church as a case study. He wanted to use the church as a case study to explore how churches can go further and farther on Facebook. And when you think about, I mean, we kind of saw this firsthand, right? I mean, when we're in the middle of the pandemic, especially when it was, um, you know, when many churches were closed, you know, many churches were trying to figure out what they were going to do. Mm-hmm. To you know, you and I talked about this before. They were, you sort of see a pretty wide spectrum. We have some that are pretty proactive and sort of think about technology, leveraging that to connect with parishioners. Others that are very old school. They're like, well, we're just going to wait. And waited out. In this case, he's... And many that just closed never came back. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, he, that's actually... That's an interesting point. I wonder how that correlates to, like, when you think about, like, restaurants and businesses that, that closed. Like, is that... Does that index around the same? Higher? Lower? I that's mean, a I, great point. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I mean, it's... You know, so much of a church's, uh, if you were to think of it in secular terms, marketplace revolves around a physical presence, right? Where... With restaurants, you've got delivery, you've got other ways to interact with it. So when that was cut off, for the ones that did not move to a technological piece, it's kind of hard to have anything be there, right? In other words, it really cuts you off from what is the lifeblood of your your ministry and your church and all that. So Mm -hmm. I would think it's different in that regard, that there really wasn't a lot of ways for it to get re-expressed without technology. Um, yeah. So if you weren't going to go st- live stream your service or do whatever, then you probably just got hurt really bad, and a lot of you know smaller churches just shuttered. Sure, and then without that that weekly connection with parishioners, it's just really hard to survive. 
and, or for them not to find other alternatives, right? right? Because there was some that were much more proactive in that. So according to this piece, it, it mentioned that for months, Facebook developers met weekly with Hillsong and explored what the church would look like on Facebook and what apps they might create for financial giving, video capability, or, or live streaming, mm-hmm. right? Um, can, can I ask you something about yeah. that, though? So you and I both work with Facebook. We've worked with Google. We've worked with YouTube. We've worked with Snapchat. To have developers on the line, yeah, that's like... That's pretty, that's pretty serious. Like pretty that, serious. That's a, that's a, that means it's a really... It's a pretty big initiative. Yeah. Which Facebook has identified, like, yeah, this is sort of our... Maybe not say the next big frontier, but a definitely a core initiative for the company, right? To dedicate development developers' time, specifically trying to figure this out with this. I mean, they've definitely identified it as a as a as a core area. Like one of the big changes that happened, and I'm forgetting now when that happened with Facebook, but there was a clear shift towards groups and the importance of groups, mm-hmm. right? Because there's been so much talk about the algorithm and how it basically uh, uh, programs what content you can view, etc. And really, even the role that publishers play within Facebook, a lot of that got really changed. And I think a lot of what Facebook started, started to lean into, and it feels like it was not a few years ago. I, mean, I don't know how long ago it was, where Facebook really started to prioritize the idea that people, they're using Facebook as a place for people to come together and connect with each other. And when you, when you heard Zuckerberg talk about this, he basically mentioned like going back to the roots of what Facebook was supposed to be to begin with. Like at some point, this thing got like, convoluted with all these publishers and fake news and trying to, you know, regulate that, et cetera. And it sort of lost its essence, the place for people to connect with other people. And it definitely seemed to be a shift towards the direction. I think this comes directly from that, of saying that, hey, we, we think that churches are also these, these great communities that people come to, yes, to maybe hear the word, but more importantly, to connect with each other. Mm-hmm. Or those now, sort of two things are so correlated, sure. maybe, maybe not saying more importantly, but they're so tied together that yeah. if there's a way for us to attach ourselves to those to those, to those type of, of, of dynamics of right. community, that could be a big opportunity. Nevertheless, there are some pretty significant and interesting implications of this. Of course, um, yeah. And, you know, that's, I think, part of the discussion here as these guys go into it, what it means not just for Facebook and the communities and audiences that Facebook touches, but what it means for the actual churches and how they evolve and change what they do and how far they stray from their mission. We talk about missions, you know, of like, you know, media companies and companies that make, you know, water heaters, but like there's that, that's a mission, but then there's a mission of, you know, the, the sort of, uh, you know, the universal mission or the commission, the great commission of, of the church and Christianity and other faiths. It's a great question. And it's a major implication. It depends on how you think about it, right? Especially when we think about, and I don't know if you would know much better than I would, if it works the same way for, for other type of denominations, Christian denominations, Mm -hmm. right? As it relates to, as compared to Catholic uh, the Catholic faith of where attending physically in in person, I guess you can do <laughs> yeah, attending mm-hmm. in person to a church is actually a big part of the the experience of actually following the faith, as opposed to where well, the purpose of you doing that is because you're then that's part of the evangelization process, right? Or is the goal just simply evangelization, whether or not you're there physically, and therefore you're much more open to have a much broader view of how people interact with the word, the message, the community. And that's, a, that's interesting. I think what, what these guys seems to have to be doing is really focusing on those sort of Christian denominations, and not just Christians, I should say other religions, but definitely, I mean, it, from the from the article that we're talking about, baseball looking at cultivating partnerships with a pretty wide range of faith communities. And over the last few years, this is not necessarily a new thing, 
Um, this is from individual congregations to large denominations like the Assemblies of God and the Church of God in Christ, which yeah. I'm, I'm sure are pretty big, you know. And I don't know what the, even what the titans are, either one of them are in terms of what, what they believe, et cetera. They've been, they've been doing it for about four years. Let me, let me try to answer your question because mm-hmm. it's a very big question. Um, I think first you have to ground yourself in what Christianity is from a global perspective. And just to give you some perspective, there's somewhere around 40,000, 40,000 Christian denominations. Um, and that th- that has accelerated pretty dramatically over the last, you know, 100 or so years. It began in the 16th century when Martin Luther split from the Catholic Church. And then from that, like, there's been just splinter after splinter. How many denominations splinter. is that? 40,000. 40,000. 40,000 branches of Christianity, of Christ, if you Just will. Christianity alone. I wasn't even looking at the, all the other ones. <laughs> like, that's not looking. Yeah, I mean, let's, you know, broadly speaking, there's monotheism, which is Judaism, there's Islam, and there's Christianity. So those are the three monotheistic faiths. Everything else is some version of, like, polytheism or, you know, pantheism, like you believe in nature or whatever right. it is. But really the three, you know, what are called the Abrahamic and, and faiths. Your, your, right, just, there's just so three. people that may not be as aware. Mm-hmm. It's just, you're talking like the belief in one God versus multiple Correct. gods. Correct. Right? Mono meaning one and theism, yeah. yeah. So monotheism is just means the belief in one God. There's basically three faiths, right? Mm-hmm. There's Judaism, um, uh, Islam, and Christianity. And it, within the Christian uh, tradition, you know, historically it was the Catholic Church, and then around the 16th century there was a break in the Catholic Church, and then from that single break there's now 40,000 different denominations. Right. So when you ask a question about, well, how does um, how do people express their faith? How much of it has to do with actually making a connection physically with somebody or being in community? It depends radically mm-hmm. among those forty thousand. Most but of what we know for sure is at least in the Catholic faith, that one it is a very important part of the, sure. of the faith, and not just the Catholic, person. but yeah, in the Catholic faith, the idea of actually like you know being in community, the idea of you know it's it's all about kind of like how you where you the fact that you're placed in a uh you know in a time and place for a reason right and you have your community of ho- at home which is your family mm-hmm. you have your broader community which is your parish right that's the place where you go with families that are in the area around you you've got the broader uh, area where you live with those families called the diocese right so it's all a question of that community and mm-hmm. and and being in community is a very important thing um, and so that's very important, but I would say it's not unique among Catholics. There's other uh, branches in Christianity that also feel the same way, that it's important to go out to the world. The Great Commission that I re- referenced earlier is the idea that you know Jesus uh, asked his disciples to go out to the whole world and baptize the whole world and mm-hmm. you know teach them about the faith. So the idea of going out to everybody physically is a big part of it, but you know just going out is a big part. So some people could look at this and say, hey, I'm doing that with Facebook. Sure. And they'd, and they'd be right. You know, I think there's a good and bad with this. You're throwing on a probably wider net, really. Oh, well, for way. sure. Yeah, yeah. And actually, if you read the piece, there's, you know, they, they invited this, you know, very interesting consortium of different leaders from all over the place. Mm-hmm. And actually, one of the, the one that they invited from the Catholic um, to represent the U.S. Catholic Church is actually one of our auxiliary bishops here in L.A., oh, uh, a guy named Bishop Barron, who has a huge media ministry. Anyway, but the idea, like, like for me, when I look at this... Um, and I'd love to hear your thoughts, but for me, there's definitely good and there's bad. Most of the bad for me, though, is less about what impact this has out in the world and more about what impact this could have on the actual churches themselves, okay? Yeah. So the good is what you said. For There's like, yeah, you can build community, you can live stream things, you can reach more people, you can be virtual where the whole world is shut down. I think all those things are good. The part that, you know, can be dicey is that 
there's no chance in my mind that Facebook doesn't see this in some way as a gigantic market that they just currently don't have access to, right? You're talking about just on the Christian side, you're talking about 2 billion people, roughly, right. okay, that, that identify as Christian, about a, you know, a little bit more than, well, depending on how you, what numbers you look at, but roughly that. Uh, Islam, billion and change, right? Jewish, who knows? I don't know the, the exact number. And then all of their faces, it's, it's, a, it's a huge chunk, right? So there's got to be some aspect of this. It's like, wow, there's a temptation to look at this about money and growth and having faith be like any other business or any other category that they're looking to serve. Of course. Right? And I think actually, there was, I forgot what they were referring to, but they actually talk about it that way, is that in terms of the policy is very similar. Look, when Facebook says how they're viewing the opportunity, they're looking, they're looking at, at basically becoming the virtual home for religious community. Mm-hmm. Right, and they're looking for. They want churches, mosques, synagogues, and others to embed their religious life into the platform, from hosting worship services and socializing <clears throat> more casually to soliciting money. And the the question, I and think, I, and which I, what you're kind of mm-hmm. getting at is like, well, what is that actually? What is the, the the pros and cons of of really having Facebook be this virtual home? There's a there's a very specific line that I put it in quotes. It's actually it's not a quote. I guess it's a direct quote from the piece where it says Facebook is shaping the future of religious experience itself as it has done for political and social life. And when I hear that, it was like, well, let's see what is, what has, what has it done, done for political, political life? and social life? <laughs> political <laughs> life. Two shits. Like, it's, <laughs> so when I hear that, like, that is not a, and what has it done for social? By the way, that's, social a, life. that's a statement that was done by the writer of the piece. Right, I get but, it. But, but, but I, and they're probably right. I it, think they are right. It's just that when you hear that, it doesn't give you tons of confidence that this is actually a good move for the churches themselves. It doesn't give you any long, confidence. Long term. Short term, definitely. But long term, it's, it's not. It's I think not, there's a lot of questions about what this does, mm-hmm. you know, from a church standpoint, you know, uh, and about really trying to, in some way, shape religion into like Target or Walmart, right? I'll give you one example about this, which I think is 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 an interesting one. There was one part of the piece that talked about a I forget what the church was. Um, it was one of the African American churches, and that the that in talking with Facebook, they had devised a a potential product that they could use for fundraising, and it was that they were going to create a subscription service. Mm-hmm. And the subscription service was about, you know, you'd pay whatever it was monthly in order to get messages from the bishop, right? Mm-hmm. Now, from any kind of other standpoint, you know, uh, consumer yeah, it was standpoint. Yeah, $9.99 per month, yeah. Yeah, $9.99 per is, month uh, to hear from... The Church of God in Christ. Was that the African-American yeah, church? Yeah, African-American, okay. yeah. Pentecostal denomination. Okay, Pentecostal church. About now, 6 million members worldwide. And I can see exactly why that would make a lot of sense. It's like, well, you know, this is a premium kind of thing. Let's put a paywall in front of it. And I was trying to think from a Catholic standpoint, you imagine putting a paywall in front of Pope Francis. Like, oh, you want to hear from Pope Francis, pay $5 a month or whatever it is. I'm sure it would make gobs of money. But the problem with that is that there's actually something called simony. And simony is where you sell church services or access to the church. And that is something that, I mean, a lot of Christian denominations, certainly the Catholic Church, but lots of them uh, consider not good, consider sinful, frankly. It actually, the word simony actually comes from scripture, from the Bible, a character named Simus Magus, Simon Magus in the book of Acts that asked the apostles to like, hey, you know, um, uh, uh, basically offered them payment in exchange for getting the apostles' power. It was like, hey, I'll pay you if you let me be like you, right? <laughs> and so now hook we- Hook me up. Hook me up. So now we call that, we call that simony, and it's a, it's not a good deal, right? Yeah, and no, so- I, I didn't know that, yeah. Yeah. And so now we've got a situation where, I, I, and I'm not saying 
saying that this this was probably done super innocently. I'm just saying that I think that that can open a rabbit hole of a lot of very tricky things to really monetize what is something that by its essence and nature is free and available to everyone. You see what I'm saying? So like that yeah. to me is really tro- problematic. I, I, I totally get that. I also think the, the contrast, I don't know if it's contrast necessarily, but the other thing to weigh in this conversation, which is what we were saying just earlier, right? We had all these churches that ended up closing down in part because of the pandemic. And the reality is, whether well, once you you know focus on that or not, having the funding to keep these churches alive, especially the smaller ones, it's a super important thing. Mm-hmm. And all of churches require like real money. That's why it's part of every single service. Yeah, for both operating the church and for doing the work that they tend to do within the communities, right? So, it is a really interesting dynamic here. There was a, an episode a a couple of weeks ago that I heard from Joe Rogan, and I forget now who he was referring to, but he was talking about like. This other, I think another comedian who does this kind of premium content. And his whole thing was like, hey, he charges whatever it is a month for this exclusive content, but also has it very clear in his side. If for whatever reason you just can't pay it, like send me an email and I'll give you access to it for free. Like it doesn't matter. Just if for whatever reason this, whatever the which I'm charging, it's just you're, you just can't, don't worry about it. Send me an email. And that's what this guy does. And, and by doing that, what he found is that most people actually do pay for it, like willingly. Uh, it's like it has like the opposite effect, right? So you could also think about it that way. I think if if you wanted to avoid the situation, to your point, where you're saying you won't get, you know, guidance of you know, the word, et cetera. Access, yeah. Access, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, by paying for it. So that could be maybe one way to do it. But yeah, I, I agree with that. I think it's probably kind of, kind of case where it's probably not done with ill intent, but I could also see how that goes sideways over time. Um. You know, in looking at this, uh, they also quoted Sheryl Sandberg, right, who's a Facebook CEO. And she said, as it relates to this issue, she said, faith organizations and social media are a natural fit because fundamentally both are about connection. Our hope is that one day people will host religious services in virtual reality spaces as well or use augmented reality as an educational tool to teach their children the story of of their faith. It's a little bit of what we're talking about. And when I hear that, it's like, if if you took away the name Facebook from it and I heard that statement, just the technology, I'm like, yeah, I get it. Mm-hmm. I probably will be pretty supportive because as we think about the ways that we consume media that we learn, this actually is a really interesting way to think about it. I was just making another <laughs> random reference. I was I was listening to uh, uh, the one of the Freakonomics uh, podcasts, uh, No Stupid Questions. They were talking about one of the questions they were they were tackling was was basically someone you know submitted a question because they do like user uh, listener questions mm-hmm. was about the the value of reading versus consuming media in other ways right and and a guy was making the case like hey in this day and age I would actually argue that it's more powerful to listen to podcasts to view documentaries to view content as a way to consume information than to just read like actually is like somewhat you know the right and. Um, you know, they're having this conversation and, and there is some level of, of interesting argument as it relates to that, of like, you know, the modalities of which we use to learn information, to get connected to messages. I haven't seen Have it. changed. And they have. The, it's, it's not necessarily a bad, <clears throat> I mean, it's almost like seemed like kind of, there was a time where it was like almost taboo to say, I'm listening to a book. Because like, sure. oh, you're lazy. Yeah. Or now it's like, oh, no, you're actually, it's not a bad thing to listen yeah, to it's, it's really, a lot. Yeah, a lot of things that you just put on the table. One, <laughs> one, per, per as use. per usual. Per <laughs> usual. Um, just throwing random thoughts at you, Charlie. No, totally. Well, look, I'll say one thing that you brought to mind is, 
And I saw this with my son, who is the pilot, that the idea, and it kind of hit me, the insight that hit me was um, ability and comprehension no longer are tied to literacy. That's a big deal. Yeah. Like that's a moment in history where my son, who's a pilot, who taught himself how to fly without ever reading a book, right? And now, and can fly a 737 or an Airbus, like commercial airplane without ever having read a book. Now you think, well, you know, you learn by doing and all that. And that's true. You do do that. But there's something about the multimedia nature of our world where you're right. You can actually build and learn and do a lot more. Now, having said that, I actually think that there's something unique about reading. There's something about it that if you do, you get deeper, you get a more well-rounded understanding of what the subject matter is. There's something about the tangible media holding it in your hand. I don't know what it is, and I'd love to see some studies, but I know that when I read a book, it's so different for me than if I see a documentary or see – I remember bits and pieces of it, maybe that one super insightful piece, and I can bring it up in a conversation and wow somebody at a cocktail party. But when you read a book, it becomes part of you, right? It's like it fills you – it's a foundational thing. Again, I have no data to back this up, but I do actually believe that there's something different. And I think that's part of the challenge here is that in a way, the virtual and augmented experiences and certainly the social experiences are kind of a counterfeit to the real experience, right? And they can be a super, again, temptation to like go, hey, you know, I'm connecting. Look at it from a homelessness standpoint. Like, oh, I I watched a video on homelessness and I gave $5. I'm good, you know? That's good. That is good. I'm not saying it's bad, but going out and meeting Penny like you did at the oh, at course. the village is a totally different thing. Story, like, I don't think anybody. I don't think anybody's heard on the show though. Um, yeah, no, I'm happy to, sh- to share that. So it's, it's, this is we're going a little bit on a tangent, but you know, one of the things that we have been involved in as part of what we do as us Black Brown and and some of the work that we're involved in is this whole concept around story doing, right? And, and in that whole idea about story doing is really about bringing to light stories that basically inspire people to get involved, to create action. Now, as part of that, we basically found uh, this, this really interesting story from, uh, from these documentaries that, documentarians, I'm sorry, that basically had shared this community out in Austin that is looking to, um, it basically has a really innovative way of thinking about how to solve for homelessness, right? The, the community is called Community First Village. And there is, um, and their whole thought is about uh, the fact that at least the, the founder, Alan Graham, who created this community, you know, he believes that, you know, the root cause for homelessness is actually, in many cases, the loss of family, the loss of community, right? That social fabric that sort of catches people when they're at their lowest. And that in order for solve for homelessness, you actually have to solve for that community aspect, not just give people houses, right? Like that alone doesn't make people, uh, you know, stop being homeless or, or and, and to that point, even that you could actually be homeless while living in a home. And, and when he talks about how many people live in million dollar plus homes, I don't even know their neighbors, right? And you, know, you, you can apply it to yourself pretty quick. Like, yeah, how, how many of my own neighbors do I actually know? Like, well, that's actually a really good point. It's very good If something point. really happens, I have to call someone that doesn't it's even live next point. to me. I can't just run next, next door and it's not as, I mean, I guess I could, but it's just, the, you don't have the kind of comfort level. So a few months ago, maybe like three months now, a little while ago, right, that we went, um, we actually visited this community out in Austin. And I tell the story because it really blew me away, right? This this community that was, that was built here, they really intentionally designed uh, the community, really help people create moments of interaction, moments where people get to build bonds with each other. And it it wasn't it hadn't really dawned on me to what extent they really understand the problem of homelessness and the issues people deal with until we met this one person named Penny, 
right? And that's walking around, um, this woman, Penny, walks up to us. And I, I describe it this way, and it sounds bad, but I think it's a, it's a good way to just explain it, is that, you know, as Penny was walking, walking towards us, and we live in L.A., you know, we see obviously lots of homeless people, especially in the downtown L.A. area, Venice, et cetera. And Penny, the way I would describe her um, as someone's hearing this is she's she's one of those people that you see. And I'm sure for those of you that have interacted with homeless people and just her day to day life, it's people that you see and you may not even make eye contact just because in viewing her, you know, it's this person that's probably has been long gone. Right. For a while. Just the look that they have, et cetera. They just seem like they've been off for a while. And that's basically the way to describe Penny. Penny walks up to us as we're doing this tour and basically super excited, super loud, and telling us how excited she is, the fact that she just um, bought clothing for the first time in like over a year, right? She was like, I just got paid. Look, I got my new clothes, super excited. Then she she starts sharing that. One of the things she's also very excited about is the fact that she just got the new shift, uh, the overnight cleaning shift at the community because everyone that lives here basically has to contribute, so they do jobs. And when she said that, that she was, you know, her new job basically was going to do cleanup overnight, you know, I thought it was pretty messed up when I heard that. Like, my first reaction, I'm like, what kind of operation are What are they are making we, these people do? What are we running here? Like, what yeah. kind of, you know, camp are we running here? And and then she said it, right? She was like, yeah, because when I was on the streets, uh, it's, an, you know, I can never sleep. And it's at night when I would do all the bad things. Remember, remember she said that to us? And I was like, oh, man, that's so insightful. It's like... And it's like those moments but it makes people sense. are sitting there by themselves in their yeah. rooms trying to sleep where they're probably most vulnerable. Where and all just, the wheels are spinning. Their mind is racing. And what these folks have done in this community is, is figured a way to give people purpose in that moment of, of biggest vulnerability. And I just thought it was so insightful when you think about that. It is. And that's uh, and, and, and I think that's the kind of, I don't know, but it, that, was, it really blew me away. But that point that you just brought up, just to kind of tie it all back together, is the part that you miss if you're doing this on Facebook. That's my point, right? So, yeah. So it's, that's, it's, it's hard to catch that, right? Because even if you watched it on a video, we have a trailer for it and people could get, you know, people could relate to it. But it's, like, sure. it's not till you see that moment and like... And you're there in person. You're there with that and person. And describing that yeah. that little little story, little insight of like, oh, I get it. Absolutely, this is something else. This and that's what else. and that's what I worry about with these things is that the, that the temptation can be so strong because it's about efficiency and it's about just getting out there and like all this technology. And there's also has to be a drive though with age though, right? Don't you think, Charlie? Because when you think about the the faith and the most mm-hmm. these folks are dealing with, they're all dealing with the same broad issue: is that the younger they go, the less religious people are. Yeah. And then, not that Facebook is the best place to start with that, I guess, if you need to do that. But but I still, I think know, it's a balancing. I think act. they're trying to figure out a way to to engage people. Like um, I said, there, there there's definitely good there's definitely good things about this. It's just you know avoiding the pitfalls and the temptations of what this can lead you to relative to the faith. I think in the calculus, again, the biggest challenge for me is what happens to the actual churches, not about whether or not we, we're good at reaching people or right. what happens to the Facebook ecosystem. Well, I just feel the, like the, the churches that I, that I can think be about undermined in, in this process. context. Um, I agree with you. But I also think that the, the one thing we're not really talking about is we're saying, how do we take the same experience, the same message, and just make it more broadly available using these platforms? But if part of the issue is how do we evangelize people that are have a different point of view, that are younger, that consume content different? Maybe part, and I know it's, it's hard to think about it in the context of faith because it has obviously a very different approach. It's not like just any other media, but like, is part of it also the 
what we're engaging them on. Of course. Part of the it's message the method. as well. It's like, the method it's like, and the message. It's like all of those things that need to be considered, right? Absolutely. I was just talking to somebody about this uh, recently, and it was, it's not just about the story, but it's how you tell the story. And where you begin to tell the story and recognizing where people are so that you can tell the story to them in a way that's going to make sense for them at that moment in time. So those are all good reasons why it's Facebook... Just, it's just crazy that we're talking about Facebook and we can literally have the same conversation about Facebook around censorship. For sure. Especially there are things that are more faith-based. But I'm telling and you, yeah, when we're you also get to, talking about we're, leaning in hard. But how we're also like, talking you know, about... His, just, yes, it, it, so it is curious, but they again, we cannot forget for a second the rarest of categories that Facebook is in of a company among a handful, literally five, that is of this size and scope on planet Earth in the history of humankind. Right. So it is perfectly reasonable that they but be both playing... Both those things are true. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. It'd be perfectly reasonable that both of those things are true. Uh, that on one side, they're causing the death of something, and on the other side, they're trying to prop it up. I mean, completely the case. Yeah. By the way, for the record, um, episode 35, we actually did remotely from that village. Um, oh, that's right. It was, yeah. it was so at the end of... if anybody wants to hear the... If anybody yeah. wants to hear the... But I don't think you talked about Penny because I don't think that had actually become a thing for you yet. It had it And yeah. literally, we just had done it. But if anybody yeah. wants to go back and listen to epi- episode 35, uh, the next pandemic is here. The, we did it from that village in Austin, and, uh, Texas. And I will say, if anyone wants to learn about them, I mean, they're such an interesting organization. We'll put it in the show notes, too. Yeah. Um, their site is Loaves and... Um, I, I think it's CFV, isn't it? Uh, CFV.org or something? Uh, we'll find it in a second, but yeah. it's uh, it's Community First Village uh, in Austin. It's mlf.org. That's what it is. M as in Mary, L Larry, F as in Frank, mlf.org. And that is the organization behind Community First Village right. in Austin, Texas. Yeah. And uh, yeah, good, uh, incredible work out there being done by Alan Graham and um, by Amber as well, Fogarty, who's the president of that organization. So anyway, a little shout out for them. Um, interesting stuff. Jesus. So shall we move on? Yeah, let's do it. To Courage or Cringe. Boom. Insert sound effect now. How'd you like that? Oh, that was great. I that love that sound effect. Yeah, see, that's yes. new. That's new. That's Lo- new. Love having sound effects. Is that considered spatial audio, that sound effect? I don't know. No, probably so. not. I don't know, but it costs a boatload of money to license these stupid <laughs> sounds, I tell you. So please, www.patreon backslash diversity remix. Please support our work. Uh, Damn it. Courage or cringe? L- listen, we're doing the first courage or cringe, but I'll, we both recognize immediately that this is such a complicated, layered story that it's a really hard it's one. It's a tough one. To it's do a it. tough one. So we'll do our best because it's super timely and it's, we just thought it was important to talk about, right? But our first courage and cringe was really, it's really around what Biden, um, Biden saying that he stands squarely behind the decision of pulling out of Afghanistan, right? Um, and and the whole debacle of Afghanistan is one that they're just, it's constantly breaking and you have new information. So we'll just do our best to talk about it. So look, I, I think at this point, I'm sure everyone that's, that, you know, that's been paying just a little bit of attention has heard of this, but the collapse of the Afghan government, right? Is it basically just happened pretty quick though. Happened super quick. It's really the biggest foreign policy crisis for the Biden presidency. Right, um, and and not just for his presidency, but it basically ties it back to other major foreign policy crises, such as the withdrawal from Vietnam, mm-hmm. right? Um, also, the the Bay of Pigs, right? The the Bosch sure. invasion, nineteen sixty three. So uh, it it is sort of in that sort of bucket, I think, right? And and Biden has been pushed back on, and Biden, frankly, has pushed back quite a bit on taking any blame. Um, now, in a press conference that he recently had, you know, he said, and I quote. Here's what I believe to my core. 
It is wrong to order American troops to step up when Afghanistan's own armed forces would not. How many more generations of America's daughters and sons will you have me send to fight America, Afghanistan's civil war? I will not repeat the mistakes we made in the past. It, and even that statement is, is, is uh, super interesting, right, to, to talk about and try to dissect. One of the things that, you know, Biden talked about a few weeks, not that long ago, maybe like five, six weeks ago, is the fact that in Afghanistan, there were about 300 armed forces, Afghani forces, of which the U.S. had trained, given equipment to, basically that was meant to protect the country, to uphold the government. And that relative to like 70,000 plus um, Taliban forces, right? So even from a pure number standpoint, it's like, hey, you have, a, you have one workforce, I mean, one uh, armed force that has, you know, probably high-end equipment, high-end training, and it also happens to be three times the size, more than three times the size. And it didn't work. Time, and it did not work. Damn. At all. There was, I mean, that was as a matter of fact, the- I still <clears> have not seen, maybe you have, Charlie, but any indicator there was any fight whatsoever no, they by ran, any of them. Seems like. They were just like, yeah, they're out. We're out. Yeah, we're out. Yeah. There was no I, attempt I, to even try to. And that's one of the things, it. that's one of the things that I saw, you know, I've got, you know, folks who are in my family and in my circle who are, you know, military and ex-military. And a lot of the, the beef that I've heard from those guys on this is the idea that the billions that were spent For to train sure. and to equip and like a lot of these folks just kind of cut and run. It's like what – I mean it really does show the the, um, the kind of failed idea of sort of you know nation building, right? Um, that's at least if that's part of it. Theme, that's a big theme in this conversation, right? Because look, Biden has plenty of blame on this thing. I, I, I do think so. But this whole thing about nation building, that's a 20-year project. Even training these, these, these troops, training those troops did not start in January or in November, yeah. Right. It just didn't. Like mm-hmm. this is something that's been an ongoing process, and the fact that it failed so miserably is just—it's amazing. By the way, and the other thing that the one thing that Biden, I guess, took the responsibility—it was definitely more about ending the war, right? Uh, than than really for the manner which it happened. He said, "I know my decision will be criticized, but I would rather take the criticism than pass this on to a fifth president." Mm-hmm. I'm the president of the United States. The buck stops with me. And that point is actually—is—it is interesting. He is the fourth at this point presidency that is dealing with the same issue that has evolved, you know, quite a bit. Yeah, w- but, but, what is but, interesting with this is that yeah. just not that long ago, a few weeks ago, he sounded super confident uh, of the withdrawal. withdrawal well, they also said that, they, that, that you did, nothing was going to happen and not to expect that it would go to, you know, that's that it right. would accelerate. So there would be like, he was basically saying there would be, and I quote, no circumstance where you see people being lifted off the roof of an embassy of the United States from Afghanistan. Oh, that does Literally, not. Literally, like, that statement did not, not age well. No. Did not age well, right? Yeah, because now we've got the pictures from the, by, from the by cargo Monday, planes and all had, that stuff. And it's super sad, man. I don't know if you've seen some oh, of these I videos, have. like the people jumping on a plane, people, like this plane taking off, people falling from those I saw death. the video. Yeah, and it then, is and then it's crazy. Yeah. And then the Taliban beating the crap out of people in the street and shooting into crowds. And I mean, look, the, the, some of that just happened. I think like today, today. Already, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the 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 thing the thing with Biden because I agree with you, it's not just him, and it goes back many years. And people, you know, need to remember that it was actually Trump who actually, I think it was last yeah, year yeah. in May, yeah, yeah. who actually said, "Hey, we're we're withdrawing." All that's true, but then A, you're the president. B, it's not about if we're getting out, it's how we get out, right? So you have to answer for those two things. The thing that I don't get and where I think he falls very short of credibility is the idea that, look, this was going to be a mess. 
you should have just said that at the beginning. Why don't people say that? It's like, listen, when we pull out, whenever we do, I'm not going to tell you when, when we do, it's going to be a disaster. It's going to be a debacle. People are going to die. You want to know why? This is a bad situation. We should have never been there. We're not going to put any more of our sons and daughters at risk. We're going to get out. When we do, mark my words, it's going to be bad. If they would have said that, but now they're saying, what do you expect? It's going to be bad. Like, no, 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 dude. You don't get to do that. You don't get to do that. You get to rewrite that. And I agree with you. Or even even making the case, the likelihood of uh, Afghanistan remaining uh, having an independent, you know, elected uh, government is extremely low. It's an area that has been in internal conflict the entire time for for decades before we even got in there. And the likelihood of this actually remaining is going to be extremely low. I think there's going to be we have to be prepared as a nation to recognize that the Taliban will play a major role of how the government looks, operates, going forward. Just saying that, Charlie, would have been, I think that already gives much more credit to understanding the situation. But we're like, I don't know, they should be fine. And I think in turn, and the reality is when the more you read on this internally, they all knew this. They're like, this is not good. This is going to be bad. Like really quick. I think the how quickly, I think I do think that surprised people because no one I think expected these guys to put no fight whatsoever, which is crazy, but it is... Just those scenes that you see at the at the airport in uh, Kabul, it's just I don't know how you try to spin that now. And I agree with you. If you if you give this any kind of if you had any kind of honest conversation with with the American people, I think it'll be much much better. Look, I went back and looked at what you know, kind of the chronology of the four different presidencies, right? So you started this all started with President Bush, right? Which was of course the president when the nine eleven attack happened, and of which attacking or going into Afghanistan was really initially meant to be um, a hunt for, for Bin Laden. Laden, for Bin Laden, right? And while, Trump, of course, trying to disrupt Al-Qaeda, which is the organization that Bin Laden was leading, basically their ability to conduct any further assaults on the West, right, and uh, or any of the, of the allies. And there was some very quick success there, and then the Taliban were sort of routed in this process, and, and the whole terror group of Al-Qaeda was disrupted, right? Mm-hmm. Then you had the second phase, which was Obama, Right, he initially sent in more troops, and then later started to remove some of the troops there. But saw that it was hard for him to pull out additional troops because they kept on getting attacked. The reality is, the Taliban has never let up. Like they've continued to like put pressure on the government, on not the government, sorry, on the I guess the the prop of government that the U.S. put in place and the U.S. forces because they always saw it as an invader coming in and taking over, trying to take over their country. Um, and then you had, of course, Trump, which you talked about, which, and there was two things. I have forgotten about this one where apparently he was looking to meet the Taliban at Camp David during one of the 9-11 anniversaries and then backtracked from that after getting major blowback. But he did announce, to your point, that the U.S. will fully pull out forces by May of this year, which then you have Biden, who basically lived up to it, although the timeline you know, moved a little bit, but... Basically lived up to that to that timeline of um, in general pulling out pulling off uh, the, the the troops from from the country. It's just such a big mess. It is, and I think the other thing, which I'm sure is a very unpopular subject, but I think we also have to talk about the reason why these these things are are so dicey and not just a political or a leadership issue is that there are very firmly held convictions among 
people of the Taliban that make this something that's bigger than just about a president or about a particular leader. And that is they have a religious perspective on this, right? They operate under a code called Sharia law. And the, we could do a whole other – we haven't even gotten to the courage of cringe, but we could go into a whole six-week clinic on this. But high level about Sharia law is that, look, everyone should be Muslim, okay, mm-hmm. A. B, if you're not Muslim, that's fine. You can pay what's called a jizya, which is basically a tax for non-Muslims. If you don't want to pay the tax, you got to go. If you don't want to go, you got to die. Okay? That's the reality of Sharia law. And so when you have that belief system, right, it survives presidents and, uh, you know, defense secretaries and all this other stuff. And it's like that's in that's their that's how they like that's their religion, right? And I'm not agreeing with it. I'm just saying that that's what they believe. So we kind of like talk about this about like oh the UN and we didn't make this move and the, all this other stuff. Like yeah, that's all maybe true. But here's the reason why this thing is pervasive and why it survives. And we're nobody's talking about that. I think that's an issue. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, frankly, this is the reason why, and I know they're not in the same buckets. So I'm not trying to put them in the same buckets. But the reason why I so strongly believe that here in the U.S., having a separation between church and state is so important for that reason. Because, I, because it's, it, just, it becomes a thing that is so hard to argue with someone or, or come to a consensus. What there is just like, no matter what your rules, laws are. That's their value earth, system. Like, That's their value. That doesn't matter anything when I have a bigger v- view of, of, of life, of afterlife, et cetera. Like, good luck trying to bridge that gap. And, of course, they have a very extreme version of how they view this and how it gets applied. You know, the saddest thing, there's a lot of sad things about this, of course. One of the saddest things that, I, that I've seen is really the fear in this country that women have now because of wait, wait, knowing... In which country? In this country? In Afghanistan, I'm sorry. Oh, Afghanistan, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Afghanistan, not, not the U.S., Afghanistan, in terms of, of knowing the, what the Taliban rule was in the 90s before all this started happening, right? And the one thing you saw, even though the initial takeover of Kabul was fairly, like, it wasn't a lot of violence when it started, I think you've seen now because you, now you've seen people try to go out and protest and the Taliban is not having none of that. I'm like, yeah. hey, this whole protest thing, yeah, that's a, you know, leave that for, uh, <laughs> we're not, leave, a, this yeah. isn't Berkeley. This is not Portland, right? Like, we're not having any shutdown, any, no, shut that down. But I mean, we're laughing, but, but, but you know what I mean? Like, it's just, uh, but I'm the, laughing to keep from the crying. The thing you it's saw just, right away mm. is like women were like out of the streets. All staying indoors, like super afraid because there is like yeah. as part of the Sharia law. To your point, is like came and go out by you know by themselves at the be with with men. There is like how like how much of themselves they can show, like being fully covered. And even though the Taliban has as, as what their spokesperson that basically said that they they have a different point of view, they've been vocal about that. I mean, I don't know, man. I think the reality is, I think it's 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 tough to believe that They're knowing right. the history of that of that group. That they're going to live up to that. There was a funny piece with uh, before they, you know, got to the, hey, this is in Portland phase. In the beginning, it was like, hey, it's pretty calm. But there was this one MSNBC uh, reporter who was on the scene of like this thing. They're like, and they're shouting. They're shouting death to America. He's like, they're shouting death to America. But they're, but they're, but besides that, it's very calm. And I was like. (laughs) I was like, that's perfect. That's perfect. It's not going to end well. It's not going to end well. 
but what? I mean, what's the, uh, but what's the courage or cringe? <laughs> courage or cringe the, on the, the courage or cringe? Really, at the end of the day, look, so, there's so many elements here. But let's just talk about it in the context of Biden basically standing firm. Yeah. On his decision to leave Afghanistan. Yeah. So for me, it's cringe. I mean, look, it takes courage to admit when you're wrong. Okay. And what he should have simply said in the beginning of this thing. Especially knowing that Trump had said we're out and he's continuing a Trump policy. By the way, that's another thing. It's like if Trump is bad, like you're now following his policy, like – you know, let's acknowledge that, but nevertheless, also don't blame it on Trump then because you followed it. Exactly. So, you also my, so are the president, you could change it if you don't. If you don't agree with it. So, my my point is, you should have just said at the beginning, this is going to be a hot mess. Yeah. Get yeah. prepared. Get prepared. We're going to execute it. People will be out of sorts. People will unfortunately die. But it's the price of doing the right thing. Mark my words. And that should have been like, you know, in a hundred foot font. Right. And if you do that, then you know what? Stuff's going to go down because this is a really ugly situation. But for him to come out there and just say, hey, I stand by – no, dude. Sorry. Cringe. Easy. I, I, I completely agree. I think it's complete cringe on President Biden. I think he really has messed this one up entirely. Um, and I do agree. Look, do I think it's the right thing to not be in Afghanistan for another 20 years? Of course. Like this part, part of the – if the goal at this point has evolved into nation building – I don't know if another 10 years would have gotten us to a better place. With There's obviously cultural issues. There's a bunch of issues that are happening here that I think more time to say will resolve. But I agree with you. The There is a lack of accountability of what I say and what I give the assessment to the, to the people about what this is. Like we gave so much shit to Trump about his his commentary as it relates to the pandemic. How we try to make everyone feel better about it, knowing in the back of my head, it's like this thing is on fire. But hey, you know, you know, stock market, and don't worry about it. It's, you know, we're we're all good. <laughs> it's a little bit of this going on here. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and and then you turn around like, no, no, yeah, we knew it was going to be terrible. Well, why did you say that five weeks ago? Right. Like, why? It's actually worth. Like, it's this whole thing about not trying to give people the bad news that I, I don't understand. Yeah. And we haven't even touched on the whole like no comment for four days, and then this whole George Stephanopoulos interview, which was a complete bus wreck. I, didn't see I that mean, one. You, yeah, you should watch it. It's pretty disastrous. But <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's, I think this yeah. definitely is a blow in his presidency. Um, I've I've seen some like articles people saying like oh he should get impeached like that. Settle, settle down. Like settle down a little bit. Yeah, yeah settle, down. settle down. But you know who's happy about this? Kamala's happy because we're not talking about the border no more. We're talking about <laughs> That's it. right. It's like I get to chill for a little uh, bit. All uh, right. All right. Slightly uh, less intense fare coming up here on Bar Rescue. Bar right? Rescue. Yeah. Our friend uh, John Taffer. I've, I've never seen the show, by the way. But I can imagine what it is. It's like Gordon Ramsay kind of like okay, turnaround Okay, but you've thing, heard whatever. of the show, right? Of course I have. Of course so I have. So this is, this is what we It's basically like, Gordon Ramsay for booze instead of food, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? This yeah. is where the generational differences are, right? So one of the one of the folks in our in our team that mm-hmm. supports and creates content, her name is Jocelyn, and she's, mm-hmm. you know, pretty young. Shout out um, to Jocelyn. So Jocelyn's awesome. I, I, I can't tell you how old Jocelyn is. She's definitely Gen Z. Um, and we were talking about this, and she was like, oh, I've never heard of the show. I'm like, yeah, I know. Of course you have it. It's like it's on TV. You heard of that? TV reality TV. <laughs> what the hell, by what the, the way, hell is that thing? <laughs> yeah, it's great. And the guys, I think fifty. So of course, you're cr- you know. laughing about that. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty funny. Mm. So yeah, so John Taffer, uh, Courage or Cringe, compares employees to dogs. <laughs> Sounds like not a good start. <laughs> it's not, not a good, good conversation opener. That would not be good. So Bar Rescue star John Taffer appeared on the Ingram Angle. Fox News. Fox News. Mm-hmm. To complain about the wage and benefits shortage 
the basic the labor shortage currently plaguing the service industry. By the way, with Lauren Ingram, have mm-hmm. you ever seen her in any of these uh, roast uh, Comedy Central roast things? No. Why she would ever show up to these things? It's like she's you... getting roasted or doing the roast. No. Well, the way they typically I'm going off tangent. I just saw it on YouTube last night and I was mm-hmm. cracking up. The way that a roast typically is is you basically going to roast the person that's being roasted. Of but every comedian not only roasts the, the roastee, but will roast other roasters. Oh, so you're okay. the second you show up, it's like free. Yeah, it's open season. So I was, I was watching the Rob Lowe roast on Comedy Central, and she was in it. Why she was in it? No, no idea. idea. But the they were brutal on her. I, mean, I have to look at it. It was like worse it. on her than, than Rob, uh, anyone else. Yeah. It was just hilarious. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. why would she, you show up? Like, this is not your crowd. This is not your crowd. Well, somebody invited her. Somebody invited her. She was like, I mean, like at that point, you have to know where you're walking into. But know your audience. And, and anyways, um, so their argument is that, of course, that the government is incentivizing people to stay at home, right? So to this point, Ingram said, "What if we just cut off unemployment? Hunger is a pretty powerful thing, right?" Yeah. <laughs> Which that by itself, we could do a courage just on that statement. We probably should have. But then, but then Taffer doubled down, like, "Oh, that's not good enough." He says, "I have a friend in the military who trains military dogs." And they only feed a military dog at night because a hungry dog is an obedient dog. Yeah, baby. <laughs> it's like that yeah. statement, like, dude. You have to see yourself as you're as the words are coming out of your mouth, and then you're, and you're seeing just, like you're just, all you're doing is away, you're, you're like, just grabbing the little crank and going, oh, trying to grab it back and make it come back, make it come back, make it come back. Go to commercial. Go right. to commercial. So then, then he said, "Well, if we're not causing people to to be hungry for to work, then we're providing them with all the meals they need sitting at home." Yeah. Um. Of course, you know, after saying this, by the way, in the interview itself, he never backed down from those statements. It was after the fact, after the interview, that he came on Facebook, all of a sudden very contrived. Sure, the backlash. Right. After some, after mm-hmm. plenty of backlash, and he apologized. And he said on Facebook, regarding the interview I did yesterday, I want to sincerely apologize for using a terrible analogy in reference to the unemployment situation. So they, it took him a day to figure that out. That, hmm, that may not have been the best of comments to make. He wanted to see the numbers. <laughs> exactly. See the numbers. That was not my intention. I greatly regret it. My comment was an unfortunate attempt to express a desire for our lives to return to normal. It sounds just like that. Uh, I recognize this has been a challenging year for everyone, I, and I am eager for the hospitality industry to come back stronger than ever. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is the courage of cringe, basically his comments, right? Um, I think courage I, of cringe, well, you know, John Taffer obviously comparing employees to dogs so they can be more obedient because a hungry dog is an obedient dog. Yeah, I mean, look, we, 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 this is a very easy show today. Um, I actually don't think the courage or cringe is the interesting part of this, though. So I, yeah, I, think, yeah, I agree with you. I think this is that's why I wanted to talk about it. Yeah, I think this is an easy cringe. Uh, it was a mistake, and it demoralizes and dehumanizes people. And you should never do that. I don't care what you're trying to achieve. It's not just the dog. The obedient pieces that what that really yeah, got just, me. Like it's just dude, a, really. It's a it's a it's a dumb statement. Who knows if it's a benefit of the doubt? Just a really bad analogy, slip of the tongue, whatever. But either way, you know whether it was you know you thought about it for a day and did it, or you just came up with it on the cuff. It was pretty bonehead, and um, and it's a cringe. Easy. However, the point. Well, I don't know what the point is trying to make. The interesting question the, is. The, I mean, the point that he's trying to make is that we're incentivizing people to stay at home. And right. therefore, and a legitimate worry about we're creating too big of an incentive to generational or therefore you're reliance. Not, you're not. Well, no, no, actually, I don't think that's his point here. About about you don't think the point is about a reliance on on government? No, uh, I, really, I, okay. I, I don't because right. we're talking about programs that are not uh, that are not evergreen. They're not ever going. Correct. We're talking about right now, very specifically, people getting support for. Mm-hmm. Uh, unemployment and getting an additional, basically, financial support that they want that is not 
in any situation considered long term that is all coming to conclusion. You're also talking about a moratorium in evictions. There's different different tools that have been put in place specifically as a result of the pandemic to help people navigate through this period, right? But none of these are are like forever. So I don't see necessarily as a situation where it's about but, like but, staying but on the system agree, forever. Agreed with you, but but like we were just talking about DACA was a stopgap that is now twenty years old. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess you can always say that. So, but his argument specifically here is that we just created too many incentives now, or too, we've given people too many benefits that disincentivize them. In, in disincentivize them, sorry, to uh, to wanting to go back to work in some of these right. some of these jobs. And therefore, you have all these people that these restaurants that can't fully open because there's not enough people that want to work. They want to work there because they're well. His his take is because they're doing. They might not be as interested in taking that kind of or, job, or maybe be doing one. frankly better, better financially yeah. by staying at home. Right, and I think that that's the sort of more interesting thing to talk about, right? In terms of of the impact of these kind of short term, not forever programs. Uh, now and potentially, God forbid, but if it is like a DACA thing, it's like, well, you know, I know we said, like, look at the moratorium situation. The moratorium situation, we've kicked the can a couple times on that, yeah. right? And and frankly, in California, I think it's, I forget when it is. It's like it, there's a federal one that got kicked and now there's the California one, which is even later. So who knows? Maybe it gets kicked again, right? I, I have no idea. Yeah, but yeah. my point is that if you look at DACA as an example, we're good at using stop gaps and keeping them for two decades, right? So that's a more interesting <laughs> – yeah conversation. I think it's a super, super unfortunate statement. It's an easy cringe. But look, I think that there is something about um, the way that uh, these kind of things, especially if they're long-lived, can have an effect on uh, people, can Mm -hmm. have an effect on how they view the world, um, can have an effect on that kind of drive that may be you know, look, I mean, it's just true. If you have no options, like you're going to be a little bit hungrier, but that's not the idea. We shouldn't try to make people – like solving for optimal hunger should not be the solution, right? Like we, let's make people as hungry as possible. Like that, that's not the way we should be operating, right? That was that's great. like this super right. – like util- the super efficiency-based kind of approach on everything. But um, but I think it is an interesting question, right, about, um, you know, this amount – what amount of de-incentivizing does it create, Right. How much of that is real? And and then how much of that is just an opportunity – it's just a cost of like doing this because like, yeah, OK, we get it. It is. But so what? We still have to do it. But it has a limited well, – I guess to me the – I have a different question here, which is – I wasn't thinking about like the long-term sort of, you know, not dependence, reliance on the government. Although your point is very fair. We have to stop because I tend to go for a very long time, right? So there's always that kind of risk. But the real question, I think, in my mind, is 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 there really the the question that we're giving people too many incentives to stay at home, or is it the reality that the current situation has highlighted the fact that some of these jobs are just so crappy to begin with, and we're not talking about addressing. As a matter of fact, we even you know one of the things that President Biden has in his platform, where he got major pushback on, was about raising the minimum wage. You know, that's why I went and I looked it up. I'm like, well, what, what is the actual minimum wage for people that are in the service industry, right? And this is crazy. On the federal level, the minimum cash wage, because there's like a like the minimum wage and then there's what tips, right? Like what that ends up being. It, the minimum wage at a federal level right now is $2.13. This is a, as of August 1st of this year. For an hour. $2.13. Yeah. If you're a tip employee. Like a waitress or a waiter. Yeah. You're, yeah. you're So hopefully you have you know, a good outing. Hopefully people are coming back. By the way, if, if people are all ordering food mostly like for takeout, you're not getting any of those tips, right? So when that's the minimum wage, $2, $2 at 
across the, the nation. Obviously, it varies quite a bit depending on where you live. Is there really a lot of incentives to do that job? Like, if you're in a situation that you could do anything else, don't you think that, that was, that's actually a place where, like, I'd rather do something else if I can. Like, that's a really crappy job to begin with. Sure, but what I'm saying See what is, I'm saying? Like, like, yes. It's I, like we're not talking, like, and that's the part where his comments doesn't even begin to address that. It doesn't mm-hmm. even, both of them, but Ingram or him, like, there's, there's no consideration, like, hey, maybe there's something wrong with these with these jobs as well that we're not even beginning to talk about. Mm-hmm. Right? And I'm sure, but, I mean, the part that to me will be really interesting to know, and I'm sure it's happened at individual case levels, like, how many restaurants will come back and say, hey, if my choices are between not being open full-time and or giving people better, uh, like, p- basically better packages, better, you know, uh, salaries, benefits, et cetera. I do wonder how many people have actually tried to make make that that choice hmm. um, as a way, because then you could open full, like, have full capacity. So then you do the math on it, like, hey, I'm actually, even if my margins get hit, I still actually better off. I don't know. I don't know if that's actually a thing that people have actually considered. Yeah. And to what degree can you actually merchandise it to consumers? I think you probably could some. I yeah. Think, I, right? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. This one is, uh, you know, is interesting. Um, yeah, yeah with, with tips included, $7.25. Score. Actually. Huge. Retirement fund. Love it. $7. This is where the, you know, minimum. An hour's a long time, by the way, for seven bucks. Uh-huh. Turns out an hour's a long time for seven bucks. It, it is. My son <laughs> is 16 and he's uh-huh. coaching little kids for soccer. He got uh-huh. a job for this uh, organization in the summer and it turned into a, now he's an assistant, uh, marketing assistant. So he's still working there, even though the summer's nice. over. Good for him. Making 18 bucks an hour. $18 an hour. 18 bucks. He's 16 years old. So that's a great point. So if your son at 16 years old, if the question if the question for him is, to, hey, do you want to work at the restaurant down the street? Answer no. Where you get two bucks? Answer Maybe no. Maybe you can't find it more. But, well, but in LA, saying, you like, might do well. You might know. do better, but it's, it can't be. You're not working at like some at a diner somewhere. But but no, I, I think it's, that's it's fair. It's actually 13 bucks in California. $13. He's still, he still say no. <laughs> That's, that's my it's point. Making 18. That's my point. Yeah. That's my point. Yeah. I don't know. Right? Yeah. So you won't you or I will not be running in the recall for California governors, what you're saying, then basically to solve these challenges, right? Well, definitely not. No. It's <laughs> right. a hard pass on that one. So yeah, right. so I think we're both we're two for both two, cringe, Jesus. Two for two. Different interesting conversation. Uh the last the last one, uh Courage or Cringe. Chris Cuomo addresses the resignation of his brother, governor or ex governor. Andrew Cuomo. Have you know, seen I'm going to use the same as uh, I did uh, with well, I did with Trump. Former Governor Andrew Cuomo. Former Governor. Have you seen any of the uh, Kyle Dunnigan uh, Cuomo impression things? No, dude. Who, who is that? Oh my god, he's. I, I heard about him, uh, and you know, I haven't listened to Rogan that much since he moved to Spotify. But every now and then, the the YouTube clips hit me. Yeah, and he was talking about this comedian Kyle Dunnigan, who basically does skits. But he uses – he'll do the face – like he's an impressionist. But in addition to the impression, he actually has the CGI of oh, yeah, the person's yeah, yeah, yeah. face over yeah, yeah. his – Yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. I can't even – Oh, I have to see this. No, I can't even speak. About, I'm going to show it to you after the show. That's but, hilarious. Um, of, of the, he does the Governor Cuomo show and it's like – and. It is what a disaster, right? I mean, the whole thing is just such a disaster. Hysterical, but anyway, my friend Chris Cuomo, who I told you before on the show, I actually like Chris Cuomo, yeah, which I, is I do too. I, so, I like Chris Cuomo so, as well. But go ahead, well, right? So, yeah. so we all know that Andrew Cuomo, the ex, mm-hmm. the now ex governor of New York, recently recently resigned in disgrace. Mm-hmm. Right after New York, New York's Attorney General Letitia James released the result of an investigation that found 
that call sexually harassed at least 11 women. Can we just, if we can say former governor, can we also say future governor, Letitia James? I mean, I mean, yeah, I think she's a great, in a great spot to, to take that, to take that job. not by accident either, and not from by what accident. I understand. But, but listen, even if that's the case, hey, when you find that many cases of harassment, I, I don't think that it may, look, even if the investigation may have been politically motivated, possibly, right, to like... It doesn't mean that the results were wrong right. or that were not were not correct. Right. I mean, it's like the there was smoke there, you know, and, right. and, and so I think there's that's kind of the case, right? Now, as for Chris Cuomo, right, for his part, there's been uh, controversy around how he covered his brother as a primetime anchor for CNN, especially during the pandemic. And as you remember, there was these these, frankly, I would I would describe as great interviews that he was doing with his brother. I in the middle of the time we were in the middle of 2020, we wondered if the world was going to end or what was going to happen. It was a little bit of uh, – it was actually a little comforting seeing these two folks who, like, generally love each other as brothers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I remember seeing a couple of those videos and then calling my brother afterwards. Just kind of check in on him. So there was definitely real human moments yep. that were there between them. But nonetheless, it definitely got its – you know, it got some pushback in terms of was it really fair coverage being that it was his brother, right? And then there was the actual controversy of Chris's involvement in advising his brother – during the investigation of the sexual harassment, early in the process, right? Something that CNN basically called him out on. Uh, and he, meaning Chris uh, Como, apologized for back in May of this year, right? So this is way before this find- findings came out. Um, the sexual harassment findings, but after the yeah. nursing home stuff. After the nursing home stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So th- that's the other thing I didn't even get into, uh, you know, with, uh, with Andrew Como is it was the whole thing, the nursing uh, death debacle. Not just that it happened, but that they actually hid the information. That's the, to me, like the biggest, like, you know, issue there is that they purposely hid information because they didn't want to get called out by Trump, which, mm-hmm. is, which is terrible. Um, even CNN offered to take him off the air for a while. If you needed to just basically take some time as the situation kind of unfolded, which he didn't want to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Chris has been pretty quiet about the situation until this week when he finally spoke about the issue, and to this he said, I never misled anyone about the information I was delivering or not delivering on this program. I never attacked nor encouraged anyone to attack any woman who came forward. I never made calls to the press about my brother's situation. I never influenced or attempted to control CNN's coverage of my family. And as you know, back in May, when I was told to no longer communicate with my brother's aides in any group meetings, I acknowledged it, it was a mistake, and I apologized to my colleagues, I stopped it, and I meant it. Now, earlier this month, basically, Chris was actually named in the report from the attorney general. And the report found that Chris Como, who had actually participated in crisis public relations sessions uh, with as his brother. As an advisor. As an advisor. Yeah. I mean, sort basically, yeah. advising. You can say he's not an official advisor, but he's still right. advising, right? Uh, where he sent the governor an email in which he proposed lines that they w- that basically that were eventually included in a late February statement in response to allegation from several women made last winter, right? Now, Chris continued, I also said back then that a day would come when he would have to be held account, uh, and I couldn't do that. Uh, I said point black, I can't be objective when it comes to my family. So I never reported on the scandal, and when it happened, I tried to be there for my brother. And yes, while it was something I never imagined having to do, I did urge my brother to resign when the time came. So courage or cringe on Chris Cuomo weighing in basically on the resignation of his brother and his role in it. Yeah, look, um, so it's a cringe for me. Here's why. I think Chris Cuomo is – the tough spot for him is he's kind of nestled between an anchor and a pundit. 
And that's kind of a weird spot to be. And a brother in this and a brother. But but let's start with the fact that when you and I don't know when you watch his show or when you watch his clips, do you think you're listening to like an anchor give the news, or do you do you? He's more pun than an anchor, I think. In my mind, I do too. Yeah, I do too. But I think that he plays both sides. Yeah, he right. definitely plays both sides. Think but of he's this idea. Way more pundit than anchor. The reality is these these networks, these both, you know, I think CNN, MSNBC, and and Fox News. There's folks that are like reading the or like telling the stuff, the news straight, like whatever it is. And then there's more of these personalities. Chris right. in the, is in the personality category, I, and I agree with you. But I th- actually think like he, Meadow and I think and, he's and, more and, of that. But I think it's still a bit of a hybrid because. I think the idea of him not covering his brother is in is a, is in the context of him being a news reporter, because if he was a pundit or an opinion person, it wouldn't matter as much. It would still matter. I, I think it still matters. I think it still th- matters. That's why I think part of it is also an, a, an intent that he does see himself as a reporter. And, and I think he and is there's a, a line that he doesn't want to cross, which is like I also can't use my platform publicly. Yeah, and here's to my point: for my brother, one I other. think he needs to ultimately, and it may not help 100 percent in this situation or solve the entire thing, but I think he needs to pick a lane. I think he should be a pundit or be an anchor, and he could do both probably pretty well. Okay, what he what he did here with this with this uh, confession or apology or whatever it is. I mean, it's kind it's a of statement, an, yeah. a statement. It's an opinion piece, right? So, I mean, I think he should give the full opinion, right? And and this, to me, was not that. This, to me, came across as, again, still kind of trying to uh, explain himself in the context of a hard news journalist. And I think that that's, yeah. that's where he gets into, into this kind of jam. The other thing is it was very much like it was me, me, me. It was like there was I 800 times in that. I think to me it was just – to me it would just be like, look, own it. That's your brother. Be a pundit. You're not a hard news guy. Like, you know, I'm going to talk about this stuff. And so I think all of this, the reason that we have such a hard time with it is because he hasn't actually picked a spot to be yeah. in. And yeah, it makes it hard it. to understand kind of how we should be thinking about him, right? Okay. And I think that drives a lot of the challenges. So to me, you know, and it's maybe a close one, but I think ultimately I ended out on cringe because I think he's got to pick a lane and then lean into that lane and in terms of the style of this, it was very much about him and not much else. So I think it could have been done in a better way. So ultimately, I'm yeah, a courage. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm on the other side of this. I'm courage. Even though I was very, have very mixed feelings about the whole situation uh, with him. I think that, look, I, I, I understand where you're coming from when you say about picking a lane, whether you're a pundit or you're a, an anchor. But I don't know. I think even if you're a pundit, I would have a big issue if anyone that is a pundit any of them, uh, use their platform to directly advocate for someone that is a relative of theirs. Uh, because there, I think there has to be a line that is crossed there where you just shouldn't comment on something like that where you are directly trying to influence an outcome for somebody. Yeah, but like massive conflict of interest, massive conflict uh, of interest. I hear that, but do you think it minimizes it if you pick that lane first though? But, but, but I think, well, but I think there's only certain people, frankly, I think that distinction between pundit and anchor is something that some people understand, but I think like well, the majority don't. Do you think people look at Sean Hannity and think like, "Oh, you're a pundit. It's all your opinion. You're not talking about facts. It's all opinion." Well, I think I don't know because I haven't watched Sean Hannity show in a long time. Or, or anyone? But, you think Maddow, Rachel Maddow? People no, see her as like you're you're a reporter, and you're not giving me your opinion. Yeah, I mean, you're probably right, but I think that a lot of those guys also are very self-referential about them giving their opinion. Yeah, yeah, right? no, I, words, I hear that, but, 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 but my, they, yeah, but their opinion comes out as fact. 
Yeah, okay. Right. So okay. so that's why to me like that distinction does it doesn't help as much in the scenario. Does it hurt? It doesn't hurt. It, okay. I, I don't think it hurts. I think for some people that are more sophisticated, understand the distinction between anchor and and pundit will probably give a little bit more leeway. If you're like, well, we know you're a pundit, so therefore, mm-hmm. it's like if Joe Rogan says it, mm-hmm. right? You're mm-hmm. someone that is all about your opinion. But even in the case of Joe Rogan, if he spent, you know, every other podcast defending something that he has a direct tie into, and then we don't find out until after the fact, like that's a problem, even if it's all opinion. So, see, see what I'm saying? I so I, I don't know how much that helps. And I think his comments, like I, I under, it's it's a really interesting situation for him because I also understand the. And for whatever this is real or not, maybe it was all fake. I don't know, man. But it looks like there is like genuine love between him and his brother. Of course. And I hope so. His brother did some like really shitty things. He did. And he's still somewhat on up to it. It was like really crappy. But it doesn't change the fact that it's his brother. So I can understand him also like giving his advice to his brother on what he's going through. That is private, that is not, and he's not talking about it on air. So I can understand the dynamic. That's why I, I maybe give too much of a pass because I'm someone that has a brother and I can understand that kind of dynamic. Also, his comment, the fact that it was very self-referential, I think the reason he did that, I'm guessing, is because he doesn't want to make it about his brother because that would then mean him talking about his brother, which he wasn't. he's not trying to sway people one way or the other. Uh, so that's where I maybe put the self-referential part. So maybe I'm giving away too much of a pass. And, and this could all start with the fact that I do think the guy is like, I do like the guy. I think the, I, I like how he talks about things, thinks about things. And maybe there's there's too much of that weighing in. And I have maybe like a soft part for their whole brotherly dynamic that I think was in some ways needed uh, over the pandemic, especially during 2020. It's just that, you know. Governor uh, or ex-governor Andrew Cuomo, you know, former, as, as I told you, former Governor Cuomo, <laughs> told you the second he released a book in the middle of pandemic, and the book the was pandem- about how, how I- he beat the pandemic. Like, what in the hell are you talking about? Like, when did you have time to write this? You realize you're in the middle of the fight. It's like, it's like, yeah, I'm, I, I published my book about winning the Super Bowl in the middle of the game at halftime. halftime. Well, you're not winning the game yet. Right. Where <laughs> it's tied. This is how what we What are won. you talking about? <laughs> how we conquered. Exactly. Like, that was, to me, the beginning of the end. Like, That's it interesting. Just went, because yeah, I, it just went south from there. Yeah, he lost it, tons of credibility with me. I mean, this is a – I mean, it, it, did, it definitely was a bit of a, you know, a roller coaster type of uh, <laughs> chronology or visualization. Yeah. Right? I was like, this guy's the next president. Right. The book and then just total it just catastrophe. Went, it just, yeah, it just, yeah. yeah. It, it just went south. And then the whole thing about them hiding information. And like, look, I could, what on that, right? Like, I could understand you There's were moving vicious quickly. Memes. You were vicious trying memes, to, vicious. You, were, you were trying to move quickly. You're trying to do the right thing. I don't think in any situation, I just don't, that Andrew Cohen was trying to literally kill old people. I just don't well, see that. I don't think anybody thinks that, even the people but who are critical of him. The second you start hiding it, then you're now like, then it's hard to defend you. There's some brutal, you there's some brutal memes that have like, been going you, out about you that. You did it. You did it, and you knew what you were doing. I showed you the one about when he resigned. I showed you the one that yeah, meme, right? That's the yeah. Like, that's with. Uh, tell me, it's because of the dead pe- the people you killed. That's that's a picture from uh, from Star Wars. Uh, yeah. the, I forget the name of the of the actress. Oh, the memes and the other one. Padme which, is, the, is the name of the character. Oh, uh, Natalie Portman. Natalie Portman. Yeah. 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 yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's pretty hilarious. Meme. What would we do without memes? Uh, I don't know. All right. Um, Jesus, thank you for episode 51. Wonderful. Good job. Good job. I'll take it. Put it in the in the books, record books. What's coming up? Anything interesting? 
we have our second episode coming up. Our potentially one year anniversary. One year anniversary. <laughs> one of these, we're going to have uh, Marcos Klein, our good friend, good friend of the show, back based on popular demand. Uh, it may be this next one or the following. He so. was actually the guy who um, we did the double show with. That's right. That's the That's the right. two parter. The two parter. So yeah, it's yeah. Just, it's only fitting that he come back for the uh, for the one year anniversary. Very good. Okay, so we'll um, we'll share some stuff in the show notes about some of the things that we talked about, uh, Community First Village, etc. So check that out. Make sure to go to www.thepatreon.com, sorry, backslash the diversity remix, patreon.com backslash the diversity remix. Support our work. Check us out there. And uh, we'll see you again next time, another episode of TDR. If you enjoyed this episode of the Diversity Remix, please remember, first of all, to subscribe and help us to spread the word. Tell your friends, family, coworkers, and give us a five-star review. We're available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your listening fix. And lastly, please remember to stop by blackbrown.us, the creator of this podcast, and take a look at our work and our approach at the intersection of diversity and business. The Diversity Remix is produced by Leo Gomez with production services by Jose Manuel Durquidi and Luis Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Network. The Diversity Remix is a production of Black Brown. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.